You're listening to the midweek service from Harvest Bible Church. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Pamela Butler. To learn more about us, please visit harvestbibleonline.org. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to do a lot of scriptures tonight, so I'm trying to mark my places so I can go a little faster. Um, Matthew chapter 16. so wonderful to lift up the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, it's, it's an honor to be a servant of God and, um, and to know that there is power in his name. You know, I, I, we got to experience something like that today just to see the powerful name of Jesus that it says that the demons believe and they tremble. And, um, you know, it's just exciting to see the enemy still bows at that name of Jesus. He has to bow at that name of Jesus. And that, that name has been given to you and I. So never take that name lightly. You know, always know that you have authority in his name. And um, that's not my sermon. But anyway, I just still hooked onto the worship. <laughs> oh, I could, I could just keep singing about Jesus. But um, in Matthew chapter 16, I want to read to you... Um, Let's start reading in verse uh, 13. This is Jesus. He's talking. He says, now when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say unto you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven And whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And then he sternly warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was Jesus. Now I'm going to stop here and just kind of talk about this a little bit. Um, Jesus wants, it's important for Jesus' disciples, you know, you've got to know who Jesus is, right? It, It really doesn't matter what the world thinks. Jesus saying, but who do you think that I am? What is your perception of who I am? And Peter comes out and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And um, as he's saying this, he's saying, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus tells him now, Peter, what was revealed to you was revealed to you from my father. You did not get this from any human being. You cannot know Jesus by your mind. If you're trying to understand God with your intellect, you, you just, it's just going to go cuckoo. <laughs> It's not going to comprende up there. It's just not going to calculate because God is so vast. He has to be revealed to us by himself. He has to reveal reveal himself to us. And just as we see that this happened here is that God reveals to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. And And it was this revelation of Jesus that God is going to build his church. It's not on Peter. It wasn't that he was going to build his church upon Peter and Peter was not going to become the first pope. It's not on a man. God never builds his church upon a man. God built his church upon his son. The revelation of his 
son who is Jesus Christ and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because we are built upon the foundation of who Jesus is the son of the living God. Now, what I want you to keep hearing as we as we go through this message is that there is our perspective and there's God's perspective. There is our ways of knowing things and there's God ways of knowing things and the two are completely different. And so we need God to reveal himself to us and we need him to reveal spiritual things, especially in the times that we're living in, because we cannot look at the things of this world with our natural eyes. If we do, we're going to miss it. And, but, but let me, let's go on. Let's keep reading. Now, in verse 21, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He told them that he would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Now, right here, Jesus is already telling them what's going to happen. And if you, if you think in the future for them, after you know, Jesus is being crucified and he's put into the grave, they're hiding away. They're, they're not even remembering what Jesus had told them that he said, look, I'm going to be killed. On the third day, I'm going to raise up. This was a spiritual concept that God, Jesus was telling them, but they were not listening uh, they didn't have the capacity to hear what, what he was saying spiritually. They're listening naturally, and they're probably thinking, well, look what Peter said. Then Peter took Jesus aside. Now, this is the same Peter that just a few minutes ago is anointed and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus saying, good, good job, Peter. You know, flesh and blood's not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And then, and then right here, Peter takes Jesus aside. He begins to reprimand Jesus. Can you even... Can you even fathom that, that Peter is now reprimanding Jesus and he says to him, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? (laughs) Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get away from me, Satan. I mean, one minute it's like I'm prophesying, I'm, you know, I am the anointed one. And the next minute, now I'm Satan. Now I'm saying the things of the devil. And Jesus, Jesus gives us a clue. He says this. He says, you are a dangerous trap to me, for you are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Now, the thing that I want you to see is that Jesus rebukes who? Right here. Who is he rebuking? Satan. Jesus is rebuking Satan. And he says, and he says, you are a dangerous trap to me, for you are seeing things merely through a human point of view and not from God's. The thing that I want you to see and understand is the trap is that when I see things through my human perspective, when I see things through my human point of view and not God's point of view, it's literally from Satan himself. And it becomes a trap to me. And that's why it's so important that we understand in the days that we're living in to not see things according to what my eyes can see or even what my natural ears can hear. Because how many know that the media, um, everything that we're hearing, all the voices, the things that we're seeing transpire, you can see them through one perspective. You can hear what they're saying, but that perspective is going to be taunted by Satan himself 
And because, and, and he wants to make it a human point of view. And man, if we're not living in an hour where the human point of view matters more than anything, but the human matter, the human point of view is not greater than the point of view that Jesus has, that God has. His exalts everything that I feel. His point exalts, is exalted above everything that I think, everything that I feel, everything that I believe. It's what God believes to be true. What God says is the, is the point of view that matters, not mine. And you see, Satan would love to bring us into this fight, into, into the, the things of the world and, and talk about my human point of view. Well, Jesus says it's a dangerous trap. It's a trap because it, it, it gets your eyes on seeing things naturally. And the, and the God of this world is Satan. And so we're, we don't live according to this flesh. Now I'm speaking to you, believing that you're all believers in this house tonight. And, um, and so, you know, we, we, it says, let, let me read in Isaiah 55. Ooh, did I just get really loud or is it just me? <laughs> ah. Isaiah 55. Look what, look what God says. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, G, this is God speaking. He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Could it just be that God has a bigger plan than what we think? <laughs> Isn't that exciting? I, I, I love, this is probably one of my most favorite passages is because, I mean, my thoughts can only get to a certain level and then, you know, in some, in some things that I'm watching happening across this world, my mind is just going, oh, God, I just don't even know what to think. And, and I love it because God says, well, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. And my ways are nothing like your ways. My, way, my, my thoughts and my ways are higher. And so right there, I want you, we, we got to begin to differentiate between that there's God's ways, God's thoughts, God's point of view. There's my ways, my thoughts, and my human point of view. But this is never where I live. This, as a Christian, this is not where I base my life. I have to base my life on the supernatural and what God's word says because when I, when I think, when I begin to see that God can do, and I said this Sunday repetitively, God can do exceedingly, say it with me, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that I could ever ask or think. That is who my God is. And so I can't ever limit him to just my perception, to what I believe, to what, you know, what I've been told or what I heard, because, you know, he's the one, he's the creator. He's outside of time. He's outside of creation. And, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, hearing a story one time about a guy who broke down on the side of the road. And you've probably heard this story too. This man's broke down on the side of the road and, you know, he puts up the, you know, what's that called? The hood. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. He pops the hood. Hey, he pops that hood. He, and, and he looks in there and, and boy, it's a mess. There's a bunch of junk in there. <laughs> that's my, per, that's what I think. Anyway, he's looking in that hood and he's scratching his head and he's like, he, he's trying different things to fix it and he just cannot figure it out. All along, somebody pulls up and drives up and says, hey, what's going on? He goes, I don't know. My car's broke down. I don't know what's going on with this. And he goes, okay, well, let me take a look. He goes, go back and get in your car and let me, I'll fix this for you. He, you know, fixes something. He says, okay, crank it, start it. Vroom, 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 vroom. And the guy goes, wow, 
how did you know how to fix that? He says, well, my name's Henry Ford. I made this thing. You know, <laughs> I love that. You know, and that's who God is for you and I. He, he's made everything. He's designed everything. He's purposed everything. And so it's good for us to always go back to the creator, right? Who, who knows everything. Now, uh, turn with me to John chapter six. And now I, I, that's kind of the foundation I want to lay. And then I want to I want to show you something that the Holy Spirit wants us to see tonight about his perception and our perception. In John chapter 6 is the story of Jesus and there's 5,000 people. So I'm going to start reading with verse 1. It said that after this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. And a huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. And then Jesus climbed a hill and he sat down with his disciples around him. And it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Well, Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. And he turned to Philip and he asked him, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? And verse six says he was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. Now here's where I love this because Jesus is going to take and show him a human perception. Okay, where can we get enough? Where can we get bread to feed all these people? Jesus is testing him. And Philip in his natural thinking, he, this is what he replies. And you and I would reply the same thing. If we saw 5,000 people, we're going to thinking, okay, we're going to say, he says this, verse seven, Philip rep- replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Now, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you need tonight. But Jesus might be just testing you too. And you may be, he may be asking you, you know, how, how are we, how, how are we going to get this accomplished? How do you think you might get this to happen? And you're thinking, when hell gets cold, when pigs learn to fly, you know, I don't, it, you know, we have our perception like, you know, I can be working for months and I still won't have enough money. And that's, that's, God does that because God's set, setting him up. God wants him to see, this is how you think. This is how you see the impossibility of the situation. You see it as, it's an, it's an impossible thing. And so let's go on. Verse eight. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and he said, well, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that? with this huge crowd. Now, come on. He was doing really good. Andrew actually is like, well, hey, there's a boy here. He has five loaves and two fish. You know, at least he's saying there's something. But then all of a sudden he says, but, and, that, and read that part with me. Let's all read that. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Now, again, I ask you, what is it that you need from God? And are you saying, but what is but what good is that god this that i have in my hand but what good is that god well let's let's see how good that is five loaves and two fish what happens something supernatural happens jesus says verse 10 tell everyone to sit down and jesus said uh, so he sat all of them down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered 5,000. So if there's 5,000 just men, then, you know, if they had wives, let's bump it up to 10,000. Then if we have children, you know, we're, we're talking several thousand people here. Verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves 
He gave thanks to God and he distributed them to the people. And afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was, say that word with me, full. Jesus told his disciples, now gather the what? Leftovers so that nothing is wasted. And so they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten them from five barley loaves. But what is that? What good is that to this? I mean, look what happened. God took, and and, and that's what God, you know, Jesus was trying to get them to see, you know, you're seeing things through the natural. You're seeing an impossibility. You're seeing, you're seeing the smallness of the situation. You're seeing your bank account is small. You're seeing your job has little potential. You're seeing whatever it is that you're seeing in your hand. God, this isn't much that I have. What good is this? That's what God wants you to, he's just going to keep reiterating that in your heart. And I pray that the Holy Spirit shows you because whatever little bit that we have, God can do something supernatural. And that's what I want to keep showing you. Now look in in the book of Haggai chapter two, Haggai chapter two. And Haggai is in, is in the back of the new old Testament. So. Haggai chapter two. Now Haggai is a prophet, and um, and this is during the time when the when the um, the children of Israel everything was destroyed. The this beautiful Solomon temple that King Solomon built it was beautiful. Like like the Queen of Sheba came and she she looked at the this this kingdom of King Saul, and she said, the half has never yet been told. She was blown away with by the extravagant beauty of King Solomon's temple. We're talking gold and, you know, just, it was huge. It was big and it was amazing, but it had got destroyed. And, um, and so the children of Israel actually get to go back into Jerusalem. And, um, and this is what's happening right here with Haggai. They're, they're, they go back and... Um, they're, they're told to start rebuilding the temple. But what they actually do is they, they neglect building the temple and they start building their own homes. And there's the message. We can, we can talk about that. And God was not happy that they're saying it's not time to rebuild the house. But I want to go, go to chapter 2 and we'll start reading with verse 1. Now remember, King Solomon's temple was amazing. It was huge. Okay, then on October 17th of that same year, the Lord sent another message to the prophet Haggai. And he, and he said, say to this Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, governor of Judah and of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of God's people there in the land. Now listen, does anyone remember this house, this temple in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem to you like nothing at all. Now keep yourself there and I'm going to read to you um, out of Ezra because it, it tells us a little more. Okay, he, God is saying, all of you that remember the temple of Solomon, they just laid the foundation. Okay, and, here, and here's where I'm going to read in Ezra, in Ezra chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 7. 
Then the people hired masons and carpenters and they, they bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon and paid them with food and wine and olive oil. And the logs were brought down from Lebanon mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa for, for, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. And the construction of the temple of God began in mid-spring. And during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem, the workforce was made up of everyone who had returned from exile, including Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, Joshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and all the Levites. The Levites, who were 20 years old or older, were put in charge of rebuilding the Lord's temple. And the workers of the temple of God were supervised by Joshua and his sons and their relatives, and Cadmiel and his sons, and all the descendants. And they, they helped in the task uh, by the Levites and the family of Hinnadad. Now, here's what I want you to listen. When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, all they did was lay a foundation. When they they completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites and the descendants of Asaph clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed with praise and thanksgiving. And they sang the song, he is so good. His faithful love uh, endures forever. And then all the people gave a great shout, praise in the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. Now remember Haggai, God is saying, do you guys remember the former temple? The temple. Now you see this foundation laid in comparison to what Solomon built and to what's being laid today. How do you compare the two? And he says, "Does it? It must seem to you like nothing at all." Reason being is it was tiny. It was a whole lot smaller, and it and it was nowhere near the extravagance of what King Solomon had built. And so it tells us in verse twelve that many of the older priests, the Levites and the other leaders who had seen the first temple, they wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation because it was so small. They remembered the glory of the former days and now they're comparing and going, this is nothing. I mean, how many, how many times have we done that with God? God, I remember the good old days and, and this is supposed to be you re-blessing me and this is supposed to be better and this is nothing in comparison what, to what I had before. And this is what was happening. They were comparing the two. They're seeing things through the natural. They're, they're judging it as if, as if God really needed a house to begin with. As if God really needed a house laid with gold and pillars of silver. God didn't need that. God just needed a place for people to be obedient. He just wanted a place where people would come and call on his name. And then, and if we go back into Haggai, this is what God had to say about this place. That in the natural, they're despising it. In the natural, they're thinking this is nothing in comparison. It's tiny. And they're seeing it through these natural perception. But this is what God had to say about it. He said in verse six, for this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. In just a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the oceans and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations and the treasures of all the nations will be brought into this temple. And I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The silver is mine, God says. The gold is mine, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And the future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory says the Lord of heaven's armies. And in this place, I will bring peace. I, the Lord of heaven's armies have spoken. And that's all that matters. 
What I see, what I perceive, what I think in the natural, it's just, it's just nothing, God. There's just, it's just nothing. It doesn't matter what my natural eyes can see because God says, like he said here, I'm going to fill this place with my glorious presence. And this place will be far glorious, greater than all the glory of the past. And there was a lot of glory in the past. I mean, when Solomon and them would go into the tabernacle and they would offer sacrifices, it says that they all fell down under the power of God. There was a mighty Shekinah presence of God. And God is saying that I'm going to do something even greater. It's, you know, God wants you to see, again, there's your way and there's his way. Now, what about the story? And, and I'm just going to, I'm just, for sake of time, I'm just going to give you these. In 1 Kings chapter 17, if you write that down, 1 Kings chapter 17, there's a story of Elisha. And he, he's sent to a woman who is a widow. And there is a famine in the land. And he, and, um, he says, you know, give me, uh, give me some of your, your bread and some water. And she says, you know what? I'm about to die. I, this, I have a handful of flour and just a little oil. And then I'm going to make this for my son and I, and then we're just going to die. And the prophet says, no, go and make me some bread and then make you and your son some bread. And he says that your oil and your flour, flour will never run out this entire famine. And so she's obedient. And, and in this story, we see that she does, she goes and she makes a little cake of bread for it, for the prophet. And then she makes some for herself. And that little handful of oil and that little handful of flour never ran out. God doesn't need a whole lot. God just needs you to be obedient. God is just, he, he just needs you to say, God, I know that this isn't a, a, a lot. I mean, that's like tithing, right? Now, ladies, you understand this. When I go shopping and I go and I see that there's a sell for 10% off, I'm like, 10% off? Yeah, right. Give me 50, give me 40. And you know, then I'm, you're talking my, you know, you're talking good. 10%, mm-mm, that's... is a joke, but that's all that God asks of us is to give 10% of our income. And what is it saying? It's saying, God, I know that I don't make enough and I'm going to give you my 10% because I'm saying what you are saying is God, you're going to take what little I have and you're going to multiply it. You're going to bless it and you're going to meet and supply all my needs according to your riches and glory. And I'm telling you, I mean, you prove God says, prove me. And he says, he will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. And so, you know, we take, God only wants a little. He only wants a little bit of what we have. And with that, he will do miracles. What about, what about David, little David? In 2 Samuel chapter 17, what a foolish thing for them to send a little boy to go fight Goliath, who was a warrior. In the natural, that is the stupidest thing I would have ever seen. The little mama bear in me, we would be like, oh my gosh, Daniel, uh, David, get back over here. What are, you, what are you doing? You know, And how foolish it would be in the natural to send a little boy to go fight a, a warrior Goliath. How more foolish is it that he goes and he takes a sling and he takes stones and he thinks that he's going to go fight this warrior with, that has swords and spears and javelins and, and all kinds and shields. And he's going to take some rocks from a creek and he's going to go fight this warrior. How foolish in the natural is that? 
But how many know that's exactly the setup that God wanted? God, and it says that David, when he went and he fought against Goliath, that he swung that and he said, you come against me with a sword and a spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of the heaven's armies whom you have defied. And this day, God is going to give you into my hands. And he begins to prophesy his defeat. And we know that as David, he's running and he throws that rock and it lands. I mean, he's fully armored. How foolish is it to think that he could, he could actually hit I mean, a rock against a fully armored man, but God got in it. Come on. God got in that rock. <laughs> God got behind that rock and he moved it and bam, it hits him right in his one vulnerable spot and knocks him down. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know if it's financial. I don't know if it's, you know, uh, you know, maybe it's in the court system. I don't, I don't know if it's in your health. I don't know what it is that it's, the odds are all lined against you. If you would give God your little, if you would give God and say, God, I'm not going to judge things by my natural eyes. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let myself be the judge, but God, I'm going to trust you that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ever ask or ever think. What about the children of Israel when they're walking around Jericho? How foolish was that? What if you and I went to, to Washington, D.C., God told us, Harvest Bible Church, I want you to go to Washington, D.C., and I want you to march around Washington, D.C., around the White House for seven days. For six days, you march one time, because this is what God told the children of Israel to do around Jericho. For six days, you, you march around the city. Do not say a word. Just walk around the city. This city is walled. It's high. And the people are looking down their walls, and there's, there goes the Israelites walking around, not saying a word. And the next day comes. They're just walking around the city. These guys are crazy. The third day, oh my gosh. They probably were, you know, now lined up on the walls just wanting to look down and watch these Israelites. What are they doing? They're just walking. Day number four, they're walking. Day number five, they're walking. Day number six, they're walking. I mean, by this time, the Jericho people are thinking, wow, this, their God is, you know, he's cuckoo. But on that seventh day, On that seventh day, God said, this time I want you to walk around Jericho seven times. And on that seventh time, give a shout. And what happened? They did that seven times. They walked, they're walking, they're walking. And they're probably really looking going, wow, well, at least they're walking more than one time this time. But on that seventh, they gave out a shout. And all of a sudden, the ground began to shake. And the walls began to, you know, get swallowed into the ground. In the eyes of the natural, it was foolishness. But in the hands of God, God can do a supernatural miracles. He's not limited to my little, my little perception. Amen. What about in Second Chronicles? When it says that uh, the, the king was saying that there's all these people that are, uh, is it Jehoshaphat? Remember Jehoshaphat? All these armies were coming against King of Jehoshaphat. And he's like, oh my gosh, we're powerless. There's more of them than us. I don't, we don't even know what to do. And he begins to pray. They begin to pray. And they get a word of the Lord. How foolish was it for them for God to say, send out the worship team first. I, you know, I, <laughs> send that worship team out. 
ahead of the warriors and let them begin to lift up the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. They obeyed. They sent the worshipers ahead of the warriors. And as they began to worship and cry out to God, come on, this is foolishness in the eyes of the enemy. But God began to fight their battle for them. What about Naaman dipping seven times in the river Jordan? That's foolishness in the natural. But see, don't you see that's exactly the kind of God that we serve, that God does not, God doesn't, you know, work in the natural realm. He's not, he's not limited to the natural laws of this earth. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. He can hold the the, the time. He can stop the sun from setting as, as we see in the Bible. He can do the supernatural things. And so I encourage you tonight that everything that we hear everything that we see everything that's going on to the world do not be limited don't think that there's a b c and d because god always has an f right after that or you know he just he it's we're never limited to the first few choices god always has the final say in everything and god's is always something different always supernatural and um and i love that but god needs he needs your obedience he needs you to trust him because, you know, he, he always needs someone. He needs someone to step out in faith. You know, it took David to step out. It took the little boy's uh, loaves, uh, the fish, the five loaves and the two fish. God needs something. He needs something for you to step out. That's why when, when you get prayed for, you know, you, you need to do something you couldn't do before. You, you need to operate and do something in faith. Whatever it is, you, you, you obey. You obey to God and give him something to you in your life. Amen. Am I speaking to anybody tonight? Amen. Father, we just, we just want to thank you so much. We thank you that you're never limited by what we see, what we know. God, I don't want to live my life according to my stupid human point of view because it's skewed. It can be warped. It can be biased. It can be just wrong. God, I pray that tonight that, Lord, all of us would just learn to tap into heaven's point of view. And God, your point of view is very clearly explained to us in your word, in in the Bible. And God, I pray that you would teach us to know what is your heart, what is your mind, especially in the days that we live. God, don't let us live according to to, uh, our limited resources, God, but to put our faith and our hope in a very supernatural God. God, you want to do miracles in our lives. You want to do miracles in our children. You want to do miracles in this church. And God, you're getting ready to, to just to do supernatural, amazing things with this body, God. And we just, we rejoice. Matter of fact, we rejoice before we even see it happen. And everything that we have, God, we give to you tonight. That God, you would just bless it and multiply it and use it for your glory. In your precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Harvest Bible Church in Stockton, California. If you live in the area, we would love to have you join us at one of our services on Sundays and Wednesdays. You can check us out at harvestbibleonline.org for location and times. We hope to see you soon.